Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we are really excited to talk to Elijah Whaley, VP of Marketing APAC at Launchmetrics, the leading brand performance cloud solution used by fashion, luxury, and beauty executives to connect with the modern consumer in a constantly changing landscape. Elijah is also the host of Park Lu China Influencer Marketing Podcast, a bi-monthly show which features guests who share their unique insights and perspectives on industry developments. We kick things off talking about how the KOL space has changed over the last five years, then discuss in depth how he worked with one influencer in particular, Melilim Fu, and grew her following to become one of the most famous and successful KOLs in China. We also discuss launch metrics and the problems they aim to solve in today's marketplace, what it's like to scale a startup as a C-suite executive in China, and further explore the dramatic rise of influencers in China. Enjoy. Because China is a high-context culture, it's, it's very relationship-based, and you have these rings of influence that people aggregate much more so than other places in the world, like America or Europe, they aggregate to to groups of people like us do things like this. You know, America is, is a much more independent nation where everybody's looking and seeking their own individualism and, and their own feeling special about themselves. But here people feel special about themselves by being involved with a group that they consider special. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Elijah, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Quick introduction of yourself, if you don't mind. Tell us how you ended up in China, how long you've lived there, type of work you've been doing, all that. Sure. So I'm uh, originally from the American Midwest, from Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, I was in video production um, before, and I could kind of see that industry um, changing very quickly. I thought I was kind of one of the middlemen that would get kind of crushed whenever there's a, a good change in the, um, in the, in, in any industry, you know, um, that is having a kind of a revolution. Went back to school. They told me that China had a really great growth story and I, uh, wanted to be a part of that. And so I came over and in 2011 and then came back permanently in late 2013 and have essentially been with marketing technology startups um, ever since, and um, specifically focused um, on KOL marketing or influencer marketing, and had kind of some special side stories on my own as far as building my own um, influencer from scratch, and then joining a uh, a marketplace technology company that was acquired late last year. And so that's where my knowledge really is specialized is in that in that vertical. How did you jump into the KOL space? Yeah, you know, it, what was really interesting was, is, you know, I kind of mentioned there, I, 
I knew, you know, it's kind of like, I look at like AI driving technology <clears throat> and AI driving technology, it's the CEOs and the mechanics are going to be fine. It's all the middle guys that are going to get obliterated. You know, they're all going to lose their jobs or they're going to get new jobs. And the same thing I could see was happening in, in video, um, which was a passion of mine since I was 16 years old, but I could see that the ability to create distribute and consume um, visual content was changing so quickly that I, that these middle band of, of people were going to get kind of crushed. And that's where I saw myself. And so once I came over to China and I saw what was happening with content creation through, you know, through cell phones and distribution through social media and the consumption, I looked at this and went, oh man, this is it. This was a thing that I was kind of afraid of happening as far as my potential for my career growth and, you know, income and things like that. And I think most people realize that, you know, the decentralization of everything, information and, and, um, and finance and, and content is where everything is going. And then the reason why, um, decentralization works so well is because we all have these unique, um, needs and use cases and and desires and the ability to create distribute and consume what is uniquely interesting to you is just a is a magical concept and so as soon as i was um exposed to it in china working with marketing technology startups i was a content marketing director and we'd send out content for distribution and go to these people called kols and I learned what a KOL was and I was like, oh, this, this is what I was afraid of. This is the future here. And so um, shortly after that, I was just like, well, I got to, I got to get into this thing somehow. And um, I, I met someone that I ended up partnering with and we started to develop um, her into a KOL. And over about a five year period, um, she developed into one of the most popular KOLs in the country. And during that time, I started blogging about it and doing talks and joined another company, um, Park Lu. And, um, and that's kind of how that story goes. Yeah, you bet. We're going to actually dig into a bunch of that stuff. Let's first talk a little bit about KOLs, okay? The key opinion leaders, <laughs> for those who don't know. How have they evolved over the past five or so years? Yeah. So originally it was kind of, you know, individuals that were passionate about certain topics, whether it be fashion or makeup or sports or tennis shoes. And they would, you know, blog about it or take pictures or short shoot videos and, and talk about it to a small community. But that has become a mega, mega industry. Um, and is now we have, you know, in China, we have what uh, is called the MCNs, a multi-channel network, which is a business that aggregates um, KOLs into a single um, organization. We have 30,000 um, MCNs in China, registered companies, um, which some of those have a couple of KOLs and some of them have hundreds, um, sometimes even thousands of KOLs that are signed with them that they can use, um, that brands can use to, you know, run advertising campaigns or the brand can use to, uh, to create, um, their own brands and sell things. And we had an MCN a couple of years ago called Ruhan, who specifically, um, created it 
KOLs with the explicit intention of creating brands go public on the NASDAQ. Um, it's a huge, huge industry. And, and now the next evolution of it now is, is this live streaming e-commerce thing, which I think 10% of, you know, gross um, sales are done through live streams now um, in China and, and these hosts who essentially are KOLs, um, are, they're just mega powers in, in, in the ability to sell. And, and that's kind of the next evolution that we're kind of seeing over here. Mm -hmm. You are the co-founder of one of China's top ranking beauty KOLs. Can you introduce, and you alluded to her before, can you introduce who is Meili Lim Fu and what your work with her looked like? Melilium Fu, when I met her, she was a uh, a makeup artist. She was a high-end makeup artist. So working with celebrities and fashion shows kind of around the world and doing covers for high-end magazines and things like that. And uh, and when I met, I... I I recognize that, Hey, this is, is with my background in content creation and her specific skills in actually being able to teach people something. I knew that the intersection of education and entertainment was the sweet spot when it came to content marketing or, or content development. And that is, you know, Everybody wants to, to be entertained, but also to be educated and to be entertained at the, at the same time provides the maximum amount of value and bang for your buck as far as your time investment into anything. And, and so just really, really took that strict strategy. And, you know, and it was very small, just her and I, and, you know, working in the living room and, and a lot of, a lot of testing and had some really big failures at times. And, but this, you know, a lot of these types of things um, are, it's kind of about staying power. You know, if you can consistently create several posts a week and high quality and keep that content very high quality, and you can do that for years you're going to attract people and, and you're, if you're providing value to them and creating community, um, that's, that's a really, really valuable, um, proposition. And, and the really interesting thing was the businesses, you know, in, in this specific case, and this is very common with KOLs, they are talking about products, you know, they're, they're teaching about how to dress or how to do your makeup or what, you know, what, sports, um, you know, athletic gear to use or, or something like that. And the funny thing is, is the brands that sell these things, they really, really missed an opportunity in the age of social to be social. They approached social media as a sales channel. And because of that, and, and the reality is none of us would ever hang out with someone that every time they approached you, they tried to sell you something. That's not what friends do where these KOLs came in and they came with an idea of, I'm going to continue to provide you value. And that value builds affinity and reciprocity that later can be leveraged to sell things. 
And so what's so funny is you have, you know, the biggest companies in the world, you know, the Nikes and the, you know, L'Oreal's and things like that. In some ways, they're kind of beholden to all of these girls and young people and, um, and boys that have put in the effort to provide value for an audience first and not ask for something. Interestingly, you talk about Melilium like she is a business. And that I find that fascinating. With a co-founder, angel investors, a business development strategy, everything. This, this is really interesting, the way, you know, the tone and, the, and that, that whole circumference of, of that, um, you know, person slash business plus, you know, slash entity. Is that how most KOLs are managed? Is it that way are, are as though they are businesses? Originally, no. But today, yes, hmm. 100%. Uh, because you you can't be competitive and you can't build something of value um, without it. Um, You know, I took that approach very early on because I saw it as a business and I thought of myself as an entrepreneur and I and wanted to make an income from this and saw that there was real potential there. The, the and the reality is today, you know the the competitiveness of the market, the e, you know the ease of creating the content, the ease of the distribution, um, has made it that unless you have a very concerted effort with a strategy and you know some potential money behind, whether that's in the creation of the content or the dis- paid for distribution, um, and then you know potential business development for, for collaborations or, or getting sponsorships and things like that. It's, it's, it's going to be very, very challenging. Even with that, you know, the success rate isn't any better. I would say it's even lower than, um, than, than a classic startup. Uh, I, I, I kind of equate it to the, you know, celebrities, sports, actors, singers um kind of world where you know less than one percent is making a killing and maybe a few percent is making a living and the rest are starving and and they'll never do they'll never get anything more than you know maybe some product seeded um you know stuff from from brands and and they might aggregate several hundred or several thousand followers, but that's not going to be enough to be able to leverage to make an income from, except for in special cases. I think um, it's unfortunate. I think that there is, there, there's some theories and I actually do um, believe in them around this idea of having a thousand real fans. And if a thousand real fans all gave you a hundred bucks a year, then, you know, you'd make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, but a lot of, Unfortunately, a lot of young people who think about influencers and wanting to be influencers don't think about it that way. They think about the moonshot and being famous and all the luxury. They don't think about it in a way of, hey, this could support my passion of creating art or some producing something that could be consumed by a a small audience. Um, So there's still a lot of potential there. But unfortunately, a lot of the focus and media and and attraction to it is the is the more viral celebrity style. Do most KOLs have an extensive team behind them? How many people worked on Millilium's team and what were the different roles? 
Yeah. So for the first two years, it was just uh, her and I. Uh, and, and there were a couple of projects that we needed to bring in, you know, more of a professional team on because we had special opportunities to work on, on larger kind of things. Um, so we'd work with a small, you know, team, maybe a professional director, maybe some professional photographer, videographer, something like that. Um, but for the first couple of years, you know, there, there was no income. There wasn't anything to make money on. Like there wasn't there, there, you couldn't afford anything outside of that. And, and it was more of a labor of love than anything. And then by the third year, things started to get pretty serious and we were able to have kind of a more of a full-time assistant, I guess. And then later uh, a designer and, um, and it didn't quite go beyond that because a lot of it was just freelance help when you need it. So, and, and because of my background, as far as a content creator and, um, skills that, um, she was able also to learn and then some of my, you know, business acumen or, or experience and, and then business development and things And we were, that was a very special case. Um, and I was, you know, I was kind of shocked by the fourth year, what kind of, you know, potential there was for, for income and things like that. But it, but essentially, you know, there was, there was a lot of dues to pay to get to that point. Um, Today, though, the, the real traditional, uh, what's happening in the market today, though, with like the MCNs is they are bringing typically a, a, a girl or guy in at an early stage in their development. So they're already creating content. Then they get reached out to by an MCN. The MCN says, hey, we want to pick you up. We're going to take you through some training courses on how to do what you do better. Then we're going to give you maybe a small team or help you with content creation. We're going to put some money behind distributing your content and then have a BD team to help, um, to help bring in brands and sponsorship. And so it's, it's at those scales. um, It's very, very different model. Um, It's very, very challenging and very few people do it the way um, that, that I did it in the past um, just because it's become so industrialized. During those two years when it was just you and Melilium, how did you explain to your parents what it is that you did? (laughs) (laughs) You know, the, my, yeah, I guess that that is a, that's an interesting (laughs) question. It was, it was okay because the reality is, is that, you know, we're, I was able to show and share, you know, share videos or share pictures and, and say, Hey, this is, this is a real industry and this is a real thing. And and the reason why I was able to kind of explain it is because, you know, it was, it was also related to my full-time job. I was making an income on the side, kind of working with these people anyways. And, um, and yeah, I, you know, I was already an expat and already in that way, maybe a, a black sheep doing my own thing anyway. So it's, it wasn't too bizarre that way. Um, but it, it is a little bit of a hard thing to wrap your head around that, that I think it might've been more difficult for her parents to understand because she had a career that was kind of <clears throat> successful and on a track 
it was already maybe not mainstream from a from a Chinese um, perspective. But then to go in and say, hey, I'm really going to invest my time and effort into this thing did seem strange. And then the fact that it was so new and and yeah, there was it was quite risk. It was high risk. You know, you had to have to have high risk appetite for something that um, fail. You know, the chance of failure is very, very high. And even, you know, the funny thing for me was as, as a marketer and someone that was even the early stages of Park Lu, when I was a CMO for the company and building a platform and working with brands, I still had other marketers in the industry telling me that this whole KOL thing and influencers was a fluke and it's going to crash and this whole industry is going to go away. And, and I knew that wasn't true because they didn't understand the power of decentralized information and content. And I knew that it was just going to grow and be bigger and bigger. And sometimes you can get into certain, you know, when you catch the wave just right, you start paddling and you're ready to stand on the board. Like you can just grow with the growth of the industry. You just have to be there kind of thing. And so um, there was also that aspect of it, of like just having faith in what you're doing. Okay. Let's, Talk a little bit about the other acronym, the KOCs. Okay, so I guess so now now we you know we we've evolved and we've actually had KOCs come up uh, a little bit on the podcast before. Uh, so you know we know that they're key opinion consumers or customers. Um, are they the same as micro influencers in the West? How might they be different and just differentiate KOC from KOL? Um, I I have a little bit um, different theory around um, KOCs than even kind of maybe some mainstream understanding of KOCs. Um, KOCs are kind of seen as um, micro-influencers, so very, very small um, followers, uh, base um, consumers that when they buy a product, they talk about it kind of thing. Um, I see, uh, I have a very different philosophy on this um, in that I believe KOCs are a definition for something that's existed for a long time, which is a, an advocate, a brand advocate, but it's a digital brand advocate. And because of that, recognizing that it's a digital brand advocate and putting a new label on it and a new approach, you can leverage it in a completely different way. And really what, what that means is a, uh, a KOC is a brand's customer and it is a brand's customer that when they talk about your product, they generate more sales. And as a brand, if you're able to identify these customers that when they consume your products, they talk about them and generate more sales, you can put this label of KOC on them and put them into a new basket and say, hey, this is an extremely valuable asset to our organization. We need to treat this person differently and, um, and leverage them as a communications channel. And really what I see today is I think the greatest way and the most inexpensive way towards customer acquisition is through retention. And there is way, way too little focus on customer retention. 
and leveraging the customers you have as communication channels, as marketing channels. And so what we're seeing in China today is really radical, actually. And that is every brand touchpoint is evolving into an experience that brands are trying to transform by surprising and delighting customers to compel them to capture and share the brand experience to become marketing channels. And they're literally breaking things down and saying, hey, when the customer comes into the store, we need to over deliver surprise and delight and create it in a visceral way so that someone wants to take their phone out, capture this and share it. Because we know this is the most impactful way of communicating with other potential customers because it's word of mouth from an individual that others know, love, and trust. And this is very transformative to marketing approaches um, from top to bottom because it spans not just the PR communications kind of thing. It's it's every single point that a brand and a customer meet. And so we're seeing how store experiences are changing, how customer service interactions are changing, how packaging design is changing, how unboxing is changing, how product life cycles and what the functionality of a product might be is changing, all in the specific goal to drive the consumer to share. We had Gregory Poudomont on the show earlier, and he was talking about even just uh, designing spaces. And, uh, you know, we've actually had, I think Andy Siegfrieds was on here too, talking about this. The way they're designing spaces in China right now, the, the, the clients are like, what is Instagram worthy? Right. This, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like this is because, you know, again, we want to get an influencer in here because this place is so Instagram worthy. This is where we want them to be shooting some of their stuff. I mean, yeah. that's the level of impact it's having, especially and 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 really just generating right out of China, you know, is this kind of tidal wave of, of that kind of thought process, which is really an incredible, you know, shift to, to think about. Totally, totally. When, you know, and I describe it as this really simply is what can you do? You know, the, the, the simplest one to me is kind of like, you know, the Amazon box or the Taobao box arriving at your home. And, and what a disappointing kind of bland experience that is, this brown box. You open it up and it's wrapped in cellophane or bubble wrap and the product pop falls on the floor once you're done wrapping it. And what can brands do when that box is being opened? that there's sounds, lights, and colors, and smells that someone says, holy crap, I got to grab my phone and I need to capture this and share this because this is a really special, interesting moment. And so that idea of, again, what can you do to over-deliver on these very common experiences that allow someone to have a special moment in their life that's worth... Um, that's worth sharing with, with other people in their lives. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've even seen it cross paths and it just through other influencer type, um, 
uh, I can't say they're influencer platforms, things like Instagram stuff where you would see some of these things. And, you know, the, you know, the, the, the camera pans through the room, maybe it's past a mirror and then onto maybe the bed or something where there's a bunch of boxes of product that have come in and it's an unboxing episode and, and they lift the lid and there's the product. And I mean, you would have to think that product producers, packaging designers are all now involved in understanding what is this going to look like on camera when an influencer opens this up? What's that reaction going to be? We need to invest in that. Totally. So I love this one pack. It's actually from Japan, but there's a, there's a package in Japan where one side is printed backwards so that the customer can hold it up in the mirror and take a picture, a selfie with themselves in the mirror and it's written forwards. So you get, you don't get the reversed image and, and it's that kind of dynamic thinking too about, Hey, what can we do to make the selfie that much easier and allow the customer to advertise for us? Right. I think they call that ambulance marketing. Just kidding. You know, for those of us who have, you know, it's written backwards for the rear view mirror. Um, let's talk a little bit about Park Lou. What is Park Lou? And what are the problems that Park Lou is solving in the uh, marketplace today? Yeah. So, well, Park Lou doesn't exist as Park Lou anymore. It's a, it was acquired late last year by Launch Metrics, and Launch Metrics is a global marketing, or they're building a uh, global marketing performance cloud for uh, the fashion, luxury, and business uh, brands. And they, we are their first foray into China. And so that acquisition was very strategic around um, data acquisition and being able to build a truly global influencer marketing platform. So we, as a company, were specifically focused on China mainland, um, supplying analytics and a searchable KOL database and an end-to-end campaign solution. And now that is you know, quickly evolving into a global influencer marketing platform um, that any brand can, you know, see the performance of global campaigns. And, and one of my, this is actually one of my favorite things that's come out of the ability for a brand to have a truly, truly global influencer um, impact campaign. And this is where we're seeing changes in, in strategy because of having this type of access to technology where a brand in the U S can now select influencers, not just based upon the performance that they will have and the impact that they'll have in the States, but also now we know that some influencers in the States are also popular in China. They have followings, they have super fans that create fan pages and, you know, re-download their YouTube videos and translate them and post them on Billy Billy or Douyin or, you know, TikTok and, and these other platforms. And so what we can do now is say, hey, here's your list of whatever, 10 influencers you wanted to work with, but these two who are going to perform just as well as the other eight are also popular in China. So you should work with these two because you get this amplification effect over in China because of the distribution of super fans. And it's that kind of really cool stuff that you can do when you have visibility through data and an aggregated you know, network like that. 
What was your experience like from the beginning with Park Lou? I believe you joined in 2017. Obviously, we know it was acquired in late 2020. So just talking about the growth um, of the company, but what is it like, you know, maybe even as an expat to participate in the rapid growth uh, of a uh, you know, of a startup and a, of a company being a part of kind of, you know, that C-suite and and then all the way growing it, experiencing that growth in China, the, the corporate growth, the hiring, the team, the challenges, the highlights. Can you talk to what that experience was like for you? And then um, on the back of that, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of tail end that with what if the company was based outside of China? Can you possibly talk to how that experience might have been different? Pre-Park Lu, I had had two horrible experiences with total crash and burn failure um, uh, startups where, you know, they just founders breaking up and in one case and, and another one where I was a CMO of another tech platform, marketing tech platform, and we ran out of money. And, um, and so I had had all of the failure experiences also, um, which were quite painful and, and, uh, mentally disruptive and, you know, affect your body and all of that kind of stuff too. And so to then join one that had, um, it was, it's timing. I, you know, I really, really feel like timing is the big, big secret in in the startup world if you can again if you can hit that wave right if you can start you see the swell and you start paddling and you position yourself properly um that's the big big secret um and the other thing that i saw that was really important and and it's very very challenging in china was talent acquisition and I think that that's a real testament to our CEO and founder, Kim Leitzis. She is incredibly talented at, well, one, being able to be patient to hire the right people, because a lot of startups have this kind of hire fast and fire faster mentality. And she was able to wait and find and hire the right people. And, and you know, organizations are, are as strong and as weak as the people that run them. And she was really, really good at finding talent and which is, can be very challenging in China, especially in the technology world, because so many young people here and so many talented people here uh, want and have access to working for these huge, you know, VC funded startups or, or very large tech companies. And, and so finding that kind of, passionate talent, um, talented talent is, can be uh, a real challenge, but going from, you know, zero to one, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was super hard and it meant working like crazy and making lots of sacrifices. But, um, you know, as a marketer for me, it was such a wonderful experience to, to learn and, you know, to, be a jack sometimes of all trades because you have to do a lot of stuff because that's what you do in a startup. You, you don't just get to focus maybe on what you're passionate about all the time. And then you learn all these kind of fun growth hacking things and, and how to, you know, everything from manipulate algorithms to how to, you know, smooth talk with people you got to talk with. And, and it was, it was, it was a wonderful adventure. And, and we really picked, I, I was very fortunate because, Again, over the last 
you know, I guess four or five years, KOL marketing, influencer marketing has just been on this tremendous growth cycle. And it's very interesting. People find it to be fascinating because it does kind of align with this kind of celebrity-ish type of thing. And, and so it was, oh, excuse me. Um, uh, so it aligns with this celebrity type of world and, and something that's very fascinating to people. And, and so there was a lot of opportunities. People wanted to learn about it. People wanted to hear. People were very interested. And, and for businesses, it had real potential to impact their bottom line. And, and they knew that it was important because that's where the awareness was. The eyeballs had shifted away from all of the traditional channels and they had to make actions there. And so in, in many ways, there was just a lot of fortune um, there. Um, and the one, one strange thing that was um, quite interesting was that that first year in 2017, um, so one of my first initiatives was I am going to, you know, I I'm going to just talk to everybody in this industry that I can talk to. And I learned very quickly that in North America at that time, there was like over 200 influencer marketing marketplace technology platforms. And in Europe, there was another couple hundred, I think globally, there was like 500 of these influencer marketing kind of plat technology platforms. And I talked to the CEOs or CMOs of almost a hundred of those platforms over about a six month period, because I really, really wanted to just understand the industry and, and create connections and hopefully, you know, have, you know, whatever referral deals and, and co-branding opportunities and such. Um, but the interesting thing about China was it was much, much less competitive. In 2017, we really only considered ourselves to have about four competitors. And I'm not really, really 100% sure why that was. Because typically in China, like if something is working and, and there's a business model that other people can potentially latch onto, you're going to have a lot of people getting into the space. But the influencer marketing technology world didn't have that same kind of competitiveness in the space. And so in some ways, it was it kind of had a little bit of blue ocean there. And so we were able to select our niche um, and and which was, you know, a little bit more focused on on the foreign um, businesses. And we had a, a dual language by bilingual platform, English and, and Chinese, and really focused on communicating in English content wise to, to, uh, to marketers. And, and so that really carved out a really nice niche for us that, um, gave us a big, big advantage there. So in some ways, like I, you know, I, I see that there was a lot of luck and fortune there that I don't think I would have experienced, or we would have experienced if we were um, say in the U S or in another market, because it just was so much more competitive. Influencer marketing is, is pretty new 
generally speaking, because, you know, in the past it was, you know, celebrities, big name celebrities. They were really the only ones that could, you know, get these these uh, kind of big name sponsorships by Nike and, you know, wear our clothes, wear our brands, wear our logos as you do your things. Maybe come and do uh, a commercial and be the face of L'Oreal for a while or something like this, you know, Um and I just find it fascinating that, you know, then there was the influencers. Then they started realizing there were, you know, people creating content and becoming influencers. And then we could use them. And, you know, then we saw, you know, like the Bang Energy drinks and everything just go nuts with leveraging that and and really kind of setting that off. But China has taken it to a whole new level. And to me, they relatively came out of nowhere where they weren't as obsessed with this before to now being the world leader. Am I right? And how did this happen in China? You know, I think I, I melt it down to uh, to actually to culture. Um, because China is a high context culture, it's it's very relationship based, and and you have these rings of influence that people aggregate much more so um, than other places in the world, like America. Or Europe, they they aggregate to to groups of of people like us do things like this, and you know America is is a much more independent nation where everybody is looking and seeking their own kind of individualism and and their own feeling special about themselves. But here, people feel special about themselves by being involved with a group that they consider special, and. And so influencers kind of play very perfectly to that cultural psych- psychology of we, um, people like us, you know, listen to this influencer and buy this influencer stuff and, and, um, and consume this type of content and look these ways and say these things. And then there's another aspect that's really interesting as part of the relationship building process in China. I'm part of Guanxi is this idea of reciprocity. <clears throat> and, and I really, really believe this is true in the West too, but it's not quite understood the way that maybe it can be explained here. Guanxi um, relationships here are very, very much built upon um, a kind of a gifting culture or, 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 um, or reciprocity. And so, and if you read any Chinese business 80 book from the eighties, you're going to know that like, you're supposed to, when you meet a new business partner, you know, bring them a small gift and they're going to give you a gift. And, and the reason why you do this is because that's a way of establishing trust and affinity with each other. And those gifts get bigger over time. I give you something and then later you give me something a little bit more valuable. And then later I give you something a little bit more valuable. And it goes to the point where we can sign multi-million dollar deals with each other. Well, on the individual basis, on social media, I recognize that content is a gift. It has all of the earmarkings of a gift. It, it it has there's labor in there involved, there's cost involved, time and even money. And it's something that has value to the receiver. And so these KOLs are consistently giving gifts to their followers. And the followers, the best way that they can pay them back is by liking, 
commenting, reposting, and being an advocate for that um, individual. And, and given enough time and enough reciprocity buildup, the audience actually is, has actually a sense of indebtedness to the point where when the influencer collaborates with a brand and says, hey, you know, buy this, there's almost a sense of indebtedness to buy that thing because you have been receiving so much value from this individual for so long that the best way that you could support them and pay them back is by buying something from this collaboration they have, which you know will support their livelihood and income, therefore allowing them to continue to produce value for you in the future. And so it's actually plays perfectly into the relationship psychology of um, Chinese people. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's kind of an increased amplification effect of the KOL ecosystem in comparison to maybe the influencer ecosystem uh, in lower context, more individualistic um, cultures in other parts of the world. Would you be willing to give us one or two recommended other guests who might be experts in certain fields, uh, you know, in China, people that you yourself might be interested to hear speak on our podcast? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, uh, I really like uh, Michael Norris. He's kind of a funny young, or he's not so funny, but he's he's a young guy that is very strongly opinionated, but has really smart stuff to say, and is very. Uh, and I can give you that direct contact if you need it. Uh, Michael Norris is a good one to have. I don't know if you listened to our one of my early podcasts with um, uh, William William something. He was one of the first big KOLs in China, um, a foreigner, um, big KOL back in like 2016, he blew up on Billy Billy and he has, he's a really funny guy. He, he now runs an MCN and an agency, a creative agency, and he's got a really good story. And he's also, he's kind of one of those guys that's in the trenches so he's not just doing, you know, he's doing the work, which I always really appreciate and I think is uh, much more genuine and real that way. Um, so he's really good. I could also connect you that way if you'd like. I think also, are you familiar with uh, Ken? Uh, he was actually the COO of Park Lu. He is the only person I know that's gone through three acquisitions. I, I don't know anybody else who has more startup acquisition experience than he does. Elijah, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great to have you on and learn everything about influencers and travels of, of Park Lu and how well you've done. And, uh, you know, can't thank you enough for joining us today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I always consider these a podcast a therapy session. So I appreciate the, the therapy <laughs> session. You're welcome. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.